Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we bless your holy name. We give thanks to you for your blessings to us. We want to call to mind your benefits. You are the one who pardons all our iniquities and who heals all our diseases. You are the one who redeems our lives from the pit and crowns our lives with loving kindness and compassion. You satisfy our years with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagle. So, Lord, we just thank you that you are so gracious and kind to your people. We thank you that you have made us your people through Christ, his work on the cross and his resurrection, buying us to be a people for yourself, bringing us into your family, enjoying the blessings of knowing you as our God. Lord, as we open your word together, I pray that you would, as Scott prayed earlier, that we would be stronger in our faith and trust in you uh, as a result of hearing you speak through your word. And I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know Jesus, that even today they would see their need for a Savior and that Jesus is the only Savior that can bring them to you. So we are very helpless and dependent on you to work this morning. Even in Sunday school, we saw how you are the one who has to open our minds to understand your word and it can cause it to burn in our hearts. And so we ask that you do that in your people this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Sometimes it's easy to say God is good after some unexpected blessing or a big answer to prayer or being safely brought through a scary situation, we might say, God is so good to me. But other times when nothing is going right and when we experience some kind of disappointing setback or it seems like our prayers aren't getting answered, we might have some doubts about the goodness of God. Our text for today is an account of how a believer worked through some questions about the goodness of God and the unfairness of life. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 73 as we continue our study of summer psalms. Remember Romans 15.4 reminds us that whatever was written in earlier times, including this psalm, was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The superscription tells us this is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was a chief musician and worship leader appointed by David. He wrote 12 psalms altogether. He wrote Psalm 50 as well as Psalm 73 through 83. So this psalm is written by a strong believer who honestly admits that he wrestles with some doubts about the goodness of God and shares how those doubts were resolved. Asaph starts off with the conclusion that he came to and that he wants us to come to. Verse 1 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
even though I wasn't so sure for a while, I can say now, surely, certainly, truly, God is good to his people. In spite of appearances to the contrary, in spite of questions we might have about his dealings, God is always and only good to those who belong to him. Asaph could once again reaffirm the truth of other psalms. Psalm 119, 68, God is good and does good. Psalm 106 and others, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Or Psalm 34, verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Know it by firsthand experience. Don't just hear somebody else say God is good, but discover for yourself how good God is. But Asaph wants us to know that he went through a time when his faith in the goodness of God was severely tested. Verse 2 says, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My feet, my steps, had almost slipped. Asaph uses two word pictures to describe how serious this battle was. First, my feet came close to stumbling. So think of going down the stairs and missing a step and narrowly avoiding a wipeout. My steps almost slipped. Think of walking on an icy sidewalk and just almost losing it. And so Asaph is saying, I'm not a hero in this story. I was almost a casualty. Matthew Henry wrote, The faith even of strong believers may sometimes be sorely shaken and ready to fail them. There are storms that will try the firmest anchors. Many a precious soul once had a very narrow turn for its life, almost and well nigh ruined, but a step between it and fatal apostasy, and yet snatched as a brand out of the burning, which will forever magnify the riches of divine grace. So what was it that was causing Asaph's faith in the goodness of God to be so unsettled? Verse 3, he tells us, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the first reason he's unsettled is God's dealings with the wicked. And in the Old Testament, It's just very black and white about people's moral status. You are either righteous or unrighteous, either godly or ungodly. You're either in right standing with God or you don't belong to him. So the wicked here refers to those who don't care about God or follow his ways. And Asaph is confused. Why is God so good to those who aren't his people? Why are they blessed with such a good life? For example, verse 5, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. So it seems like the wicked have less than their fair share of adversity and more than their fair share of prosperity. But Asaph doesn't just notice how well off the wicked are. He envies them. That's how Jerry Bridges defines envy. Envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness 
of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. Sometimes we want that same advantage leading to the further sin of covetousness. And sometimes we just resent the other person having something we don't have. Maybe you've felt that kind of awareness before yourself. You're at a family reunion or a class reunion, and you can't help but notice that some of the unbelievers just seem so successful, at least the way the world defines success, and maybe the way you define success, because you're using the same definition the world uses. They're living the good life. They're doing so well. They're living the dream. A lot of nice stuff. And you think, must be nice. I wouldn't mind having some of that. I wouldn't mind being so well off. And like Asaph, we're tempted to envy the prosperity of the wicked. Well, Asaph was not only unhappy about God's dealings with the wicked, he was discontent with God's dealings with the righteous, specifically God's dealing with him. Look at verse 13 and 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. When Asaph compares his life with other people, it looks like the exact opposite of what Isaiah 3, verse 10 and 11 say is supposed to be the case. Isaiah 3.10 says, Say to the righteous that it will go well with them. For they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked. It will go badly with him. For what he desires, what he deserves will be done to him. So Asaph looks at life, looks at people around him, and he says, life is going pretty well for the wicked, and it's going pretty badly for me. They're enjoying the good life, and I'm enduring a hard life. He complains, I'm stricken all day long. Stricken means afflicted or overwhelmed by misfortune or sorrow. And I'm chastened every morning. Chastened means to correct by punishment or suffering. And so in his frustration of over all his troubles, he comes to the conclusion, surely in vain, I have kept my heart Pure. In other words, trying to follow God's ways has been a waste of time. It's just not worth it. Trying to be faithful to God hasn't made me any better off. In fact, I'm worse off than those who don't even care about God. So he says basically saying, there's something wrong with this picture. God is blessing the wrong People. He should be blessing righteous people like me, and he isn't. And he should not be blessing the wicked, but he is. And so the unfairness of life is what is troubling Asaph and causing doubts about the goodness of God. Asaph recognizes that sharing his doubts before they were resolved would have been harmful. To God's people. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So Asaph is concerned about the spiritual welfare of other people. He knows that just venting all his thoughts might undermine the faith of others and cause them 
to stumble. It should be worth remembering before you post something on social media about all your questions and issues and problems and doubts about God before you get them resolved because you could cause someone else to stumble. Verse 16. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Asaph tried to sort out all the questions he had in his own wisdom and he got frustrated and weary trying to come up with a satisfying answer. It just didn't make any sense. He wasn't getting anywhere, verse 17, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Asaph entered into the presence of God in the place of public worship. And he experienced what David wrote about in Psalm 63. If you want to turn back a few pages to Psalm 63. Verse 1. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. So, There's two things going on there. One is right now he's spiritually dry and thirsting for God and very aware of his need for God. And then he has a flashback to, I've been in the sanctuary, and when I've been in the sanctuary, I've seen God's glory and power. Or Psalm 27, also by David. Again, remember Asaph and David knew each other. Asaph worked for David. Psalm 27, 4. One thing... I have asked from the Lord, and that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate or inquire in his temple. So Asaph is getting his eyes off of himself and his troubles, starting to turn his eyes to God and his glory and his beauty. Roy Clements put it like this, Worship puts God at the center of our vision. And it is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. It is only when God is at the center of our vision that we see things as they really are. Maybe you've had a similar kind of experience as Asaph. I know I have. In the context of a public worship service, God uses a text from his word in Sunday school or the message, or you have an encouraging conversation after the service in the fellowship hall, or the hymns, the lyrics of the songs. Today we sang, Be thou my vision, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. You are my treasure now and always. Sometimes you can sing that and just nothing happens, and sometimes it just goes, bam! That's right. That's true. I feel that, not just know that. Worship is 
gladly giving God the honor and praise that is due him as the great and glorious God that he is. And as we participate in worship, and as we focus on him, we start seeing ultimate reality. And as we see ultimate reality, that helps us regain the proper perspective on life and all its little mini-realities. Asaph specifically mentions a fresh reminder about eternal destiny. Back in Psalm 73. Till I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. As Asaph worships God, he has a shift from thinking only in terms of the short term to thinking about the long term. Not just how things look Now, at this moment, but how things will look later. The wicked who seem to be enjoying the quote-unquote good life now will have a terrible future. Look at verses 18 through 20. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Think about Jesus' story about the rich man in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to turn over to that, Luke chapter 12. And the context is a man in the crowd saying, tell my brother to share the portion of the inheritance that is mine with me. And Jesus responds in verse 15 of Luke 12 by saying, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed or covetousness. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very Productive, And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Most Americans would hear that story and go, that's what I want. That's the dream. Get a lot of stuff, retire early, take it easy, enjoy yourself, eat, drink, and be merry. Life is good. You might even envy this guy until you read the rest of the parable. But... God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you envy him now? Does that sound like the dream now? No, it's a nightmare. You've got what this world offers and you lose your soul. Remember what Jesus said? What shall it gain a man to, 
or profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul. It's a terrible trade. I don't remember where I heard this illustration first, so I can't give the footnote, but think of someone you know, maybe at work or some extended family member bragging about how they're going on a luxury cruise. And you might be tempted to envy them. Maybe that's something you've always wanted to do. And then you find out, they, they tell you, oh, the name of the ship is the Titanic. <laughs> Knowing what you know now, aren't you cured of your envy? The end of that ship is destruction. Hundreds of people's lives were lost. Do you really want to trade places? No. And in an even greater way, it makes no sense to envy the prosperity of those who don't know or care about God, who will perish forever if they don't repent. So as we close, what is your eternal destiny? What happens after this brief life is over? Are you just assuming you will go to a better place? Here are some realities you need to know and embrace. One, none of us is eligible to go to heaven and be with God. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12 says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, none acceptable before God, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So we're all in the same boat. Excuse the play on words from the last thing. It's sinking. We're all sinners. We've all sinned against God. No exceptions. We're not acceptable in his sight. And second is none of us can qualify ourselves to be accepted by God. In Isaiah 64... It says in verse 6, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We have nothing to offer God. We have nothing to bargain with. We have nothing to um, offset our sin. And so only Jesus can change our eternal destiny. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners. His death on the cross was the only way this barrier between us as sinners and a holy God could be removed. He paid the penalty we deserve to pay, namely the judgment and wrath of God, and offers forgiveness and eternal life instead as a gift received by faith. And he rose again from the dead, showing this life is not all there is, and that he is able to keep his promise because I live you shall live also. John 11, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So if you have never trusted in Jesus, trust him today. And for believers, 
putting together the unfairness of life and the goodness of God can be a fight of faith. It was for Asaph. It will probably be at some point for many of us. And Lord willing, we'll see more that will help us in that fight next Sunday. We're only going to do the first 20 verses this morning. So come back next week if you can or listen online next week for the conclusion of where Asaph lands. It's amazing where he lands compared to where he started. But for now, the thing to would be to remember a big step is getting and keeping a right perspective. Namely, looking at the long-term view of eternity and not just the short-term view of this life. So let me share a story. Maybe some of you have heard about this family. Scott and Janet Willis were driving on a freeway in Milwaukee a few years ago. And the truck in front of them, a big chunk of metal fell off, hit their van, caused the gas tank to explode. And Janet and Scott were severely burned, and six of their children were killed. So um, Scott and Janet were interviewed by Randy Alcorn, um, and these are some of the things they said. Scott said, quote, The depth of our pain is indescribable. However, the Bible expresses our feelings that we sorrow, but not as those without hope. What gives us our firm foundation for hope are the words of God found in Scripture. Ben, Joe, Sam, Hank, Elizabeth, and Peter are all with Jesus Christ. We know where they are. Our strength rests in God's word. When I interviewed the couple 14 years after the tragic Event, Janet said, Today I have a far greater understanding of the goodness of God than before the accident. Doesn't that? Isn't that something? I, when I read the goodness of God on that, I was like, wow. Because don't you think she at least struggled with a couple doubts about the goodness of God when she lost six of her kids in an accident? Everybody else's kids don't die in a burning Van? How come it happened to us? We're following you. Other people don't even care. And they drive safely in Milwaukee every day. Don't you think she had some doubts about the goodness of God? I think she did. But she can look back and say, I have a far greater understanding of the goodness of God than I did before the accident. So Randy Alcorn asked Scott and Janet, what would you say to those who reject the Christian faith because they say no plan of God could possibly be worth the suffering of your children and your own suffering over all these years? And here's the answer. Eternity is a long time, Janet replied. It will be worth it. Our children's suffering was brief. And now they have the eternal joy of being with God. We and their grandparents have suffered since, but our suffering has been small compared to our children's joy. Fourteen years is a short time compared to eternity. We'll be with them there forever. It sounds like they've been reading 2 Corinthians 4, doesn't it? Therefore, we do not lose heart, But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 
for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's pray. Well, Lord, all week long we've been hearing this world is all there is, this life is all that matters. You only go around once, live the American dream. All week long we hear that. And we need your grace to not be conformed to the world and its thinking, but to have our minds transformed and renewed and to be able to see reality from the perspective of eternity. We can't do that ourselves. We are asking you to open our eyes to eternity. Give us a bigger glimpse. Give us more reminders of eternity and being with you forever. Help us to have the right perspective on this little brief life and its troubles and trials. Lord, I pray for anyone who's not ready to step into eternity. There's no second chance. There's no turning back. Once this life is over, they will stand before you at the judgment. And so I pray that they would be turning to Jesus. He's the only one, the only way to be accepted by you. Lord, I pray that what Asaph experienced in this psalm would be experienced this morning by several people that maybe came in with doubts or questions or just feeling weak in their faith, that their faith would be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen.